Welcome to The Waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, and single men in possession of good fortunes. Every episode, you get a new pair of feminists to talk about the thing we can't get off our minds. And today you've got me, Shana Roth, a senior producer for Slate. And me, Anna Nordberg, a freelance journalist who writes about books, TV, family, feminism, and how they all mix together. This week, we're talking about Jane Austen. And when I think of Jane Austen, I think of my high school crush. We read Pride and Prejudice in my AP English class and watched the 2005 movie starring Keira Knightley as our heroine Lizzie Bennet and Matthew McFadden as the love interest Mr. Darcy. And there's a scene where Darcy helps Lizzie into a carriage and then the camera pans down to the hand flex that made a million women swoon. And my crush was in that class. I'm fairly certain he did not know I existed. But when that scene happened, he turned to me and said, is that like because he's really into her? And I blushed so hard that my armpits began to sweat. And I have honestly been in love with Jane Austen ever since. And I love her novels in part because despite being written in the 1800s, there's something so modern and transcendent and universal about these stories that even the school jock who happened to be in the AP English class can't help but become invested in her characters. Jane Austen completed only six novels, but those works have been turned into so many period-appropriate and modern movies, television shows, and novels, not to mention just a cottage industry of Jane Austen Action figures, which I own, sweatshirts, mugs, candles, kitchen towels, pillows, scarves, got one of those too. I mean, the list goes on. Jane Austen and her works have saturated our culture to the point where you don't even really realize it anymore. And even if you've never read Pride and Prejudice, if I ask you about your favorite movie where a stuffy or seemingly grumpy man falls in love with a feisty woman, I mean, chances are you're going to be talking about some version of a Jane Austen adaptation. Anna, why did you want to talk about Jane Austen today? Well, this is a topic I can't stop thinking about because at a time when we're reevaluating so many of the stories we watched or read growing up, it's, it's just amazing how well Austen actually holds up in terms of her themes, her women, her characters. They are downright enlightened. I mean, I've read her novels again and again throughout my life as a kid. Pride and Prejudice was my mother's favorite novel. So I learned about it early, you know, as a single woman in my 20s, after I was married, after I had kids. And then during COVID, you know, staggering through Zoom school and unloading the dishwasher seven times a day, like every other mom I knew, I read all of her novels again. And it was amazing how much they, how much relevance they had. And also, how interesting the relationships are between men and women. I mean, here we are in 2022, you know, saying, you know, did COVID kill feminism because it forced so many women outside of the workforce and still showed how unequal so many of the domestic labor and childcare is in our country. And while Jane Austen has nothing enlightened to say about childcare, she does have these relationships where The men and women have these intellectual conversations that are on very equal footing. These conversations feel far more modern 
than the stifling norms of the Victorian era that would have followed the Regency era that Austin wrote in, and also the Gilded Age in the U.S. that came after. And while Austin's heroines are, you know, for the most part, easy on the eyes, it's their minds, their intellect, their temperament, and again, their character, you know, that all-important Austin idea of character that they are truly loved for. We are going to return to a lot of those stories. Coming up, we're going to talk about Jane Austen's characters, why they endure, and why some of them maybe need to be kept on the shelves. But first, a quick break. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Hey, Waves listeners, if you're loving the show and want to hear more, please subscribe to our feed. New episodes come out every Thursday morning. And while you're there, you should check out some of our other episodes, too. Last week, we had an amazing conversation about the streaming wars and what gender has to do with what's going on at HBO. Welcome back to The Waves. Let's start with Jane Austen's women. They get to speak, which sounds like you know, well, duh, of course they do. It's a romance novel, but but it's it's really not, especially back then. It's a big deal that the women were allowed to talk. And even today, women in media are really not given a lot of room to talk. There was a 2019 piece in Vogue that said, quote, females made up 34% of all speaking characters, a decrease of one percentage point from 2018. A new report from San Diego State University Center for the Study of Women in Television and Film found, while males accounted for 66% of speaking characters. And this even includes rom-coms. Just think about how much airspace the men take up in your favorite rom-coms. Women just don't get to talk. But in Jane Austen's novels, we get characters like Emma, who's also the title of the book, who says things like, quote, I always deserve the best treatment because I never put up with any other. You know, we get sisters talking to each other. We get an entire novel about sisters in Sense and Sensibility and female friends talking to each other. And even old widows and spinsters get to talk. It really is amazing. Austin's women have a lot to say, and they say it, you know, in her novels and their on-screen adaptations, women have far more dialogue than both the men do, and more than what we see in contemporary movies or TV shows. And it, it actually reminds me a little bit of the, you know, classic films of the 30s and 40s, you know, like Philadelphia Story with Catherine Hepburn where the women actually speak so much more than they do now in contemporary Hollywood. And it's sort of like, what happened? When did we start becoming afraid of letting women talk? You know, the enduring power of Austin, to me, should be a rebuke to all the concerns about the marketability of movies that rely on dialogue driven by women. So, you know, and I found even in the last couple of years, I've even had some sympathy for, you know, poor Mrs. Bennett, who talks a lot and is very histrionic, as we know, and her nerves. But, you know, even she really does get her say and is this full-fledged character. Oh, Mr. 
Bennett, how can you tease me so? Have you no compassion for my poor nerves? Oh, you mistake me, my dear. I have the highest respect for them. They've been my constant companions these 20 years. <laughs> I think that is, that is great. You know, let the women speak. That's one of the sort of central themes of Austin. And that's an interesting point that you bring up, Mrs. Bennett, who is the mother in Pride and Prejudice of the Bennett sisters. The fact that she feels like such a full character, even though the story is not about her. If anything, she's she's not really a villain, but she's kind of an antagonist in the book because she's just trying to get her daughters married. What's interesting to me about Austen is not only that her women speak, but that she has so many different types of women. There is not just a single Austin gal. I mean, some of them tend to share characteristics, like they all tend to be fairly intelligent. They tend to be uh, well-spoken and mannered women. But I would argue that someone like Anne Elliot in Persuasion, who is a very gentle character, one that we don't really see very often anymore. You know, she's sort of quiet. She's very reserved. She's a very interior character. It's very different from, say, Elizabeth Bennett from Pride and Prejudice, who's very outspoken, who's very fun, who I think you could probably call her jolly, who is also very different from Emma, who is, you know, a very rich, sophisticated busybody. You know, these are all just very different types of women. And I feel like when I read Austin's books and I really look at all of the different types of female leads she's had, it's depressing because it seems like today we don't get that variety of of women. And one of the things I love so much about Clueless, which is the uh, uh, adaptation of Emma uh, set in modern Beverly Hills with Alicia Silverstone starring as Cher Horowitz slash Emma, is that it actually showcases a character who we don't see a lot of now. Like the idea of, she she's charming and wonderful. She's also a total busybody, thinks she knows more than she does and thinks it's her job to sort of change everyone's life around her. And it backfires terribly and she has her learning lesson. Ms. Stoger, I would just like to say that physical education in this school is a disgrace. I mean, standing in line for 40 minutes is hardly aerobically effective. I doubt I've worked off the calories in a stick of carefree gum. If this were not an update of Emma, I could see it maybe being a harder sell that the sort of busybody know-it-all uh, is, is, is actually going to anchor a film the way Alicia Silverstone anchors Clueless so amazingly. You know, all of her characters have flaws, even our amazing Lizzie Bennett. You know, she is the first person to jump on the George Wickham bandwagon. Wickham is the villain of Pride and Prejudice who slanders Darcy and kind of makes up these stories. And then we find out that he's actually the one who's been preying on younger women and um, and so Elizabeth is so quick to believe Wickham because she wants to, because she wants to think badly of Darcy. And uh, and she has to, you know, do her own come to Jesus at the end of the book and realize that she's also made her mistakes. And then Anne Elliot, uh, Anne Elliot of Persuasion, in her gentleness, in her interiority, in her in the sort of unwavering courage it takes to lead a good life for yourself and others, even when your heart has been broken. And she does that. And she is the, you know, Lizzie is all fire and 
witty quips. Lizzie is sort of what you see nowadays. Lizzie is sort of like the modern archetype of the ideal female character. She's sassy, but sweet. And, you know, you can can take her out for a beer. She's almost, I hate saying this, she's almost the Manic Pixie Dream. Almost. Almost. I don't want to fully say it, but like, we can't. We can't. can't But like, but you see her as being the ancestor of the modern female character, whereas the Eleanor Dashwood, who is also a very gentle character, who, you know, puts her sister above herself and her own happiness. We don't see that anywhere near as much lately. I think it almost feels as though Austin was not afraid to have characters that you didn't like sometimes that were cringy almost at times. And we just don't see that as much today. There is a movie that recently came out called Not Okay. And there is a disclaimer, like a like a trigger warning at the beginning of the movie, uh, unlikable female character, which I think was part joke <laughs> and part just like kind of pointing out that we don't really let women be unlikable nowadays. But Austin's books are filled with unlikable yet usually likable characters. Like, she balances that line really well. With COVID, I keep returning to these heroines of Austin because I'm like, they matter. They kept things going when you know everything was was kind of was kind of going to shit and they kept it together and so i i think i would like to see more complicated women um more sort of you know air quotes difficult women because that's such a charged word anyway and i think austin is again this reminder of like were we more open to more versions of women and femininity and what it meant to be, you know, how you could be a woman, what that character was, you know, 200 years ago than we are now. And again, I think no, but it does, it does bring up an interesting point. And that kind of draws a contrast for me, at least to the men of Jane Austen. I I sometimes wonder if they're really that great. Uh, you know, there's always the, the Mr. Darcy, which everybody thinks back to, he's given a pretty full character development, you know, he really changes throughout the course of Pride and Prejudice. But a lot of her male heroes feel kind of interchangeable. Edward Ferris in Sense and Sensibility is Eleanor Dashwood's man, like like her love interest. He really doesn't talk a lot at all throughout the book. And so I wonder if her if her male characters are just kind of meh. Well, Edward, poor, I think we would call him an introvert today. He is very shy. So that is one of the reasons. And I do think Hugh Grant in Ang Lee's Sense and Sensibility brings Edward to life actually in a better way than Austin does in the book. Eleanor, I met Lucy when I was very young. (laughs) Had I had an active profession, I should never have felt such an idle, foolish inclination. My behavior at Norland was very wrong. But I convinced myself that you felt any friendship for me. And that it was my heart alone that I was risking. I've come here with no expectations. Only to profess, now that I am at liberty to do so, that my heart is... and always will be... yours. But I hear you. You know, maybe you could say, you know, the same thing... Uh, in Mansfield Park about Fanny's love. She's the the poor cousin and she's in love with her 
first cousin. You know, I often return to Colonel Brandon in Sense and Sensibility. To me, is the sort of perfect blend of he's not, you know, he's not as sexy or dramatic as like a Darcy or a Wentworth from Persuasion, but he is the consummate, you know, good guy. Emma Thompson calls him the kindest and best of men in in the movie version. Uh, but in but in a sort of sexy way, not in a boring way. I think Austin is more interested in the women and, you know, men are the stem and women's the flower and they get to shine more. And I, and I like that, but I do think um, there is subtlety and texture. And speaking of the men, so a lot of the villains in her books are, are men and they are villains because of their treatment of women. I mean, one of her few repeats is the side stories of men taking advantage of women, either to increase their own station or essentially just for their own pleasure. And I do love that Jane Austen, one, is just having none of this. We don't see as much in modern times these stories of like, hey, this is a man taking advantage of a woman in a non-assaultive way. You know, he's just like, he's taking advantage of her emotions and her feelings and leading her on and things like that. And I think, you know, it's it's a very rich story that she paints with these villains and sort of like why they are villains and why we don't like them, even though sometimes we kind of like them. She's very good at making them charming and interesting and then pulling the rug out from under you. Well, if you take this sort of two classic villains, George Wickham from Pride and Prejudice, and then Willoughby from Sense and Sensibility. What's interesting is like, Wickham is like a through and through black hearted villain, just kind of out for himself, but he has such charm and openness of manners that he kind of lures everyone in. Willoughby is more interesting because he actually was going to propose to Marianne, who's Eleanor's younger sister, who's madly in love with him. He loves her. They they both, you know, they love literature. They love poetry. They love walks in the rain. You know, they're very into each other. And then at the last moment, he's disinherited by his patroness because he acted badly towards another woman. In fact, not not just exploited her, but got her pregnant and abandoned her. And so what's interesting about Willoughby is Willoughby is a bad guy. He's, for a moment, if none of these other complications had come along, we, we might have never known that. He could have just married Marianne and had a happy life. But he's he's not a good guy. And it's Marianne who, in the end, marries Colonel Brandon. Um, not this fiery character, but this reliable character. And I think that's another thing in our rom-coms that we lose sometimes, that that reliableness is is sexy too. It takes a lot to be that kind of guy. It's kind of easy to be the sexy ruffian bad boy. You don't have to call anyone back. You can just, you know, do your own thing and then come back and say you're sorry in some dramatic way and you're so good looking. It doesn't matter. And, you know, it takes more to be that that reliable person. So I've always felt it is not settling to go for that person over the sexy ruffian. It's actually, I think, a, a, a good choice. Dare I even say a feminist choice. We're going to take a break here, but when we come back, we are going to get into Jane Austen's legacy. 
And if you want to hear more from Anna and myself on another topic, check out our Waves Plus segment, Is This Feminist? And today we are debating whether the proposals in Jane Austen's novels and the rejections are feminist. And please consider supporting the show by joining Slate Plus. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, no paywall on the Slate site, and bonus content of shows like Amicus, Slate Money, and of course this one. So to learn more, go to slate.com slash the waves plus. And I'm a Slate Plus member. I love it. So definitely consider joining. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Welcome back to The Waves. It is very hard to make a Jane Austen adaptation. It's one of those things, it seems, when they're good, they're really good. When they're bad, just set it on fire. The modern ones set in modern times seem to fare better. Thinking of Clueless, A Fire Island, granted there's some exceptions. So, Anna, what is your take about all of the Jane Austen adaptations in general? Why are these so hard to get right? It's a great question. And I think the most important thing is very simple. It's, you know, does an adaptation preserve the spirit of the novel? And it can preserve the spirit of the novel while doing very interesting new things, looking at it new ways, set in a contemporary time. But the spirit of the novel has to be preserved. When it doesn't preserve the spirit of the novel, like, dare I say, Netflix's uh, latest adaptation of Persuasion, which sort of united the internet in in wielding pitchforks against it. Um, the problem is that the adaptation refused to kind of throw off the constraints of the novel. It, everyone was in costume in Regency England. It followed the basic parameters of the plot. But the dialogue was just sort of like invented out of whole cloth. It sounded like a TikTok parody of persuasion. The first note he passed me in church. The playlist he made me. One lock of hair from him. And one from his horse, Samson, whom I scarcely knew. And this cowbell, whose sad, empty knell best captures my melancholy. Eight years of it. Stop, stop. This is, you know, as as one viral tweet 
put it, you know, whoever wrote this needs to go to like a penal colony in Australia. You know, it's very, it was just, um, it was a bridge too far. It wasn't fun. It basically felt like it was trading on our affection for these characters while while turning them into completely unrecognizable versions. So I think the adaptations fail when they only look like Austin, but they don't care about being Austin. Um, and my my final thought on this would be, is there are so many interesting ways to update Austin. For instance, there's only like one glancing mention of slavery and the slave trade in all of Austin's novels, and it's in Mansfield Park, and uh, where Sir Thomas, the sort of head of the family, has a plantation in the West Indies, which even though it's not said explicitly, that would obviously have have run on slave labor and benefited from the slave trade. What we could have seen in Persuasion, say, is, you know, Wentworth, he traveled to the West Indies. He would have seen this. He's a really upright, heroic guy. What would he have thought of this? Could he have had a conversation with Anne about it or Captain Bennock, his friend? That's where I think you can push Austin into more modern territory. Don't make Anne Elliot sound like Fleabag. One of the areas that I think our culture in general tends to get wrong about Jane Austen is in the enemies to lovers trope, which you see in Pride and Prejudice. Elizabeth does not like Mr. Darcy to begin with. He's very resistant of his affections for her, but they come together at the end. And this is a trope that Jane Austen did not invent. You can go back to Shakespeare had this trope. There was other ones, but she certainly seems to be the sort of modern architect of it. She is the one that really brought it into sort of our current pop culture. When we think of the enemies to lovers trope, we think of her, we think of that story. And I think where this has at times turned toxic is when people think that Elizabeth changed Darcy, that she actively tried to change him and make him a better person. I believe that that becomes toxic when we are telling that story of a woman needing to change a man, that he is a bad man and she needs to make him into a better one. And I think where they tend to get wrong, particularly with the spirit of the story with Pride and Prejudice, is that Lizzie never actively tries to change Darcy. And not only that, I don't even know if it's a true enemies to lovers, because very early on in the book, he's talking about her bright eyes and how much he's into her and making it kind of known to people in his social circle that he's got eyes for Elizabeth and she's the one that's like, I need you to get away from me. Just leave me alone. And I think it's really interesting when people look at the enemies to lovers trope and examine like, is it toxic? Is it not? And they kind of look at Pride and Prejudice and think, well, is Mr. Darcy really this this great character? Why is this story all about Lizzie having to change Darcy? And it's like, no, that, that's really not the case. And I think that when we accurately look at the spirit of Austen's books, particularly Pride and Prejudice, that's, I think, where it really feels fresh and modern. And that's what really endures. This idea that we do not change people, but we change ourselves to be better people because of those that we are around and those that we aspire to be good enough for. It's a cliche, but it's a cliche for a reason. You know, Darcy does the work himself. And he has to do the work himself. I mean, if you actually read the novel or, or watch, you know, most of the adaptations, 
they ha he initially insults her and she overhears him. I've never seen so many pretty girls in my life. You are dancing with the only handsome girl in the room. She is the most beautiful creature I have ever beheld. But her sister Elizabeth is very agreeable. Fairly tolerable, I dare say. Not handsome enough to tempt me. You'd better return to your partner and enjoy her smiles. You're wasting your time with me. She's hardened against him, but almost immediately he starts becoming like obsessed with her. It's almost as if he had to insult her because otherwise he could tell how much she was going to captivate him. And he really is in love with her. And, and Austin spends a lot of time with Darcy's internal processes about how he feels about Elizabeth. She refuses him when he proposes the first time. And he can't believe it. He cannot believe that he, Fitzwilliam Darcy, has been refused that he basically goes off for months like never expects to see her again just like nursing the these reproofs and he when he does by chance see her again at first it's not about winning her back it's simply about showing her that he she he is not the man she thought he was in that refusal and he does this by being very gracious and warm to her aunt and uncle who live in Cheapside in London. So for the old Darcy would be beneath his notice. He, he changes that. Um, he changes his manners to be more welcoming and open and make an effort. Um, and also on the really important particulars, like did he uh, do a dreadful wrong to a childhood friend? He's exonerated immediately. Elizabeth realizes this is an untrue story. So it's not it's not that he be, turn, becomes a good person from an evil person, but he does become, as he says, when she finally accepts him again. I've been a selfish being all my life. As a child, I was given good principles, but was left to follow them in pride and conceit. And such I might still have been, but for you. Dearest, loveliest Elizabeth. And that if not for you, of course, maybe someone reads that and thinks, oh, she changed him. But what he's saying is, if not for you and you standing up for yourself and you rejecting me because I did not act in a in a more gentlemanlike, in a kinder, in a in a more thoughtful way, you know, I would have just kept muddling along in my, you know, horrific selfish pride. So he does the work. And that as the canon story of enemies to lovers, we have to remember that. Darcy has to, you know, put on his big boy pants and do the work himself. Before we head out, we want to give some recommendations. Anna, what are you loving right now? I'm loving right now what I love always, which is Ang Lee's adaptation of Sense and Sensibility. And to me, it is just the most glorious Austin adaptation it has humor, it has pathos. Emma Thompson wrote the screenplay. And um, side note, later married the man who plays the sexy ruffian Willoughby, which I kind of <laughs> love too. Uh, that off screen, they're actually together. And to me, it, it, you know, it is the Austin adaptation I could watch again and again and again on a loop on a desert island. 
I'm going to have to rewatch that one again very soon. I am going to recommend Cosmo Jarvis's music. We kind of shit on the most recent version of Persuasion, but Cosmo Jarvis played Captain Wentworth in the Netflix Persuasion. And as it turns out, he has really great music. He hasn't really put out anything in a few years. I've only been able to find his stuff a little bit on Spotify, but mostly on YouTube. But if you just search on YouTube Cosmo Jarvis, he's got some really fun songs. I recommend Look at the Sky or Shit Your the one. They're all really, really fun songs. And then finally, I also just want to add, because we've been talking about Jane Austen, I just wanted to remember a very beloved professor of mine from Aquinas College, Dr. Brent Chesley, who passed away uh, several years ago. And he taught my Jane Austen seminar. And the man absolutely adored Jane Austen. He adored Jane Austen and he adored car chases. And I learned so much from him. More than anything, I just learned what it meant to be a magnanimous human being. He was delightful. He always called us persons of quality when he was greeting the class at the beginning of every session. And it was very sad when when he passed away. And it is very hard for me to think about Jane Austen and not think about him and, and his delightful and lovely wife, whom we got to meet a few times. And you really saw the sort of Jane Austen influence in in their love together. And so I just wanted to remember Dr. Brent Chesley. That's our show this week. The Waves is produced by myself, Shana Roth. Shannon Paulus is our editorial director. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio. Daisy Rosario is senior supervising producer of audio. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at thewaves at slate.com. The Waves will be back next week. Different hosts, different topics, same time and place. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.